Welcome to another inspirational message from Bridge Church Melbourne. You doing good? So good to see you. Let's pray together. Father, we commit to you this word right now. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us one life to make a difference for you and for all eternity. Lord, we want to make the most of every moment. Father, as we conclude this series, I pray right now this message of one person prioritising, engaging with, discipling one person into the kingdom would mark our hearts, mark our church, mark our culture and mark, Lord, this city. Father, I pray right now as we've already been worshipping, praying, as we've been acknowledging your presence, Lord, as I preach today that you would come and you would heal sick bodies. We lift up every physical infirmity and, and need in this room and we just speak healing restored. We speak energy, life, restoration of kingdom health from the crown of people's heads right through to the sole of their feet. God, we just declare today that in your presence is not only fullness of joy, but fullness of healing and fullness of life. You came to give us life, life in all of its abundance and fullness. God, come, move by your spirit in this house today. We thank you for every family, every individual. Lord, we pray your blessing and favour upon all of our lives in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. Just want to highlight the uh, importance of next Sunday is Vision Sunday. So uh, you'll find out more about that later. But we have four services here at City Campus. All the Melbourne campuses are coming together. 9am, 11am, 3pm, 5pm. So you want to get here early to get your seat because we're going to have a lot more people here next week. We're going to be reflecting and reviewing the year as well as focusing forward on what God has for us next year. We have lots of exciting announcements, so make sure you come along and be a part of that. But today we're concluding One Life series. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 15? Luke 15, and uh, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 7. We're going to read the parable of the lost sheep. Can I encourage you, if you are a believer, that you uh, bring your Bibles with you to church, whether that's on your phone, your iPad, uh, or you're old school like me, uh, bring your Bible along. And uh, whilst we show it on the screen, the Scriptures, uh, we really want to encourage that people are interacting with the Word of God in their daily lives. God's Word is our foundation. Let's have it on us. Let's read it. Let's live it. Luke 15, verse 1 to 7 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Today I'm talking about prioritising one person in your world 
that God has called you to engage with, to reach out to, and to disciple into the kingdom of God. Three weeks ago, we started the One Life series talking about what are you doing with your one life? We talked about in our relationship with God, it's so important we prioritize one devotional time every single day. It's been so encouraging to hear several of you share your stories of what God has done in you and through you during your devotional time. Secondly, we talked about the importance of engaging in one ministry, how every person in this room has a gift, has a calling, has an ability that God wants you to connect to. And you learn that by starting to serve in the life of the church and your gift will find you. This week, we're talking about the importance in our relationship with the world is that we are actually identifying and discipling one person in our world that we're going to reach for Jesus. Now, several years ago, when my younger son Joshua was learning to swim, we took him to a swimming pool. I hopped in the water. He was standing on the edge of the pool. And I encouraged my son to jump into my arms that I promised that I would catch him and that I would teach him to swim. And yet, no matter how many repeated efforts that I gave him to encourage him to jump in the water, no matter what I did, he just sort of looked at me like it was a Mexican standoff and he didn't want anything to do. He's not sure he can really trust that dad's going to catch him. And so I started to get a complex about it, if you know what I mean. I'm like, my son doesn't trust me. What's going on? So I thought if I increase the volume of jump in and daddy will catch you and teach you how to swim, that that might work. That didn't work either. Finally, I had to go to him, pick him up, bring him into the water. He was a little bit afraid of the water at that time. And together, we began to help each other and I began to teach him how to swim. I think sometimes that many well-intentioned churches, believers, pastors and leaders motivate believers to evangelize the same way. We think that if we yell, evangelize, loud enough, long enough, that we'll all just start evangelizing. And yet many Christians and believers hear messages on evangelizing the lost, fold their arms like my youngest son, and look with great suspicion and mistrust as to whether or not they're going to participate in that and do that. When Jesus commissioned us, he didn't yell at us, go and swim without teaching us how to. He didn't yell at us, just go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit without modeling to us a lifestyle of how making disciples actually works and what evangelizing the lost actually looks like. So compelling was Jesus' life and message that sinners found Jesus incredibly attractive. And we read that in the first part of this passage in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. A cursory reading of the Gospels discovers that crowds of people were attracted to come and listen to Jesus. We read that sinners would eat with Jesus. The sick were carried on mats into the presence of Jesus. There were people like prostitutes who would honour and respect Jesus. Why was Jesus so attractive to the unsaved and to sinners? It's because, frankly, he loved them. 
and his love was authentic. It was unconditional. It was non-judgmental. Jesus was accessible, not only as a person in his identity, but in his language, in the stories he shared, the metaphors, the parables, the insights that he shared was the language and and, and icons of the culture of the day, people could relate to Jesus. Jesus served people. Jesus had an anointing upon his life that was very attractive to people. Jesus was attractive to sinners. I remember several years ago on family holidays overseas, after a couple of days of swimming in the pool at the resort and hanging out with the family, I had one of the workers and employees from the uh, resort come up to me and asked me a very frank question. He said, are you a Christian? Right? And I'm like, wow, that was quick. Didn't have to do anything. And, and, and he's like, you know, are you a Christian? And, and I said, yes, I am. Why do you ask? He said, because I've been watching your family the last two days, a little bit creepy, but I've been watching your family the last two days. And he said, the way that you treat each other and interact with each other and the boldness and confidence and maturity of your kids tells me that you're a Christian. And I felt pretty good about myself just for a couple of minutes. And I went back to my wife and I said, can you believe what this guy just said? I said, just keep up the performance, would you? Just keep it up. And, and so we, we sort of reflected on that encounter one, people are always watching you even when you don't think they are. Particularly people who are searching for truth, searching for answers in life. But also the way that we live our lives and the way that we treat each other is sending a message to the world about who we follow. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. How you and I love each other, how we treat each other, is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have as a church. If we aren't building healthy relationships with each other, if we're, uh, not, if we're casting judgment upon each other, if we're, if we're not honouring or showing grace, extending grace to each other, we're telling the world about the reality of our personal intimacy and relationship with God. Is your witness today as a Christian repelling people from Jesus or attracting people to Jesus? Because people around about us should notice that there's something different about us. People should see that there is something different in the way that we talk, in the way that we treat people, in the way that we go about our work and our business, not as a performance, but as a reality in our hearts. The Bible says, Guard your heart, for out of it flow the springs of life. When you encounter the reality of who Jesus is and have a spirit-filled transformation in your life, becoming more like Jesus, when it's true and congruent in your heart, what comes out of your heart, what comes out of your mouth, what comes out of your life will actually speak volumes to others around about you as to what is most important to you and who you follow. You are the only Jesus people will ever see. You are the only Bible people will ever read. What are people seeing about Jesus through your life? What are people reading about the Word of God through your life? And one of the challenges that we face in Western culture is we face a significant barrier to engaging with unbelievers. And today what I want to do is not just yell at you to swim 
I actually want to talk to you about how you and I can become effective evangelists, about how you and I can make disciples of Jesus without fear, without the awkwardness, and without living a life that worries about what are people going to think about us, but actually takes a step forward today and grows in confidence and grows in knowledge and awareness of some of the issues that Western Christians face because of what's going on in our culture. The greatest cultural barrier that Western believers face in evangelizing lost people today is the divide between what's sacred and what's secular. This was happening in Jesus' day. The Bible says in verse 1 of this passage that the Pharisees, who were religious conservatives, and the scribes were grumbling and complaining. This was not a new phenomena. Religious people have a habit of complaining and grumbling, right? And so, and, and by religious, I don't mean someone who has faith in God. I mean someone who lives their life by rules and regulations. And the reason they grumble is because when you step outside of the rule and the regulation, they've got a problem with it. This was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. How dare he? Shock horror. This is not allowed. Why? Because the Pharisees were sectarians. They created laws to distance themselves and separate themselves from others in order to maintain their righteousness and their holiness. They loved God but they didn't love people enough to come out of their religious subcultures and actually engage with people. And when you and I as believers get stuck in a religious rut, in a, in a religious subculture, we start to create dividing lines between the sacred and the secular, between us at church on Sunday and the reality of where people live Monday to Saturday. And we actually have to be very intentional and deliberate to learn from what we read in the Gospels, but to also take a step out of our comfort zones that we've created for ourselves to engage people where they are at. Now, several years ago, I used to ride my bike down on Beach Road. I was uh, training and preparing for different races and triathlon and different things. And the training group that I would ride with was filled with lots of colourful personalities. And so on this particular day, I found myself riding two hours with a guy who was proudly gay. And he was not backward in coming forward in letting everyone know about his lifestyle. And so for two hours, we, uh, we're riding alongside each other, had nowhere else to go. So we just start to build a relationship and start a conversation. I'm asking him about his world and his work and he's telling me all about his relationships and his work and his dating and this and that. I learned a few things that day. It was amazing. And so, you know, we're, we're riding along and we're building this rapport, making this connection. At the end of the two hours, we went to a cafe with all of the other athletes and I shouted everyone breakfast and coffee. And this guy, when he discovered that not only was I a Christian, but I was a preacher, he had a mind snap. He, he couldn't fathom that someone like me was not only doing what I was doing, riding a bike down the road. I'm like, Christians like to be healthy too. Um, I'm like, where have you been, bro? Uh, and, and, but he couldn't believe that someone like me, who was a preacher, was willing 
to just not judge him, but love him for who he was and show him generosity, show him grace, show him kindness. He sort of couldn't understand it because he'd actually bought into the sacred and secular divide himself. He said, well, if you're this type of person and you do this type of thing, then you are separate to those who are churches and go to church and, and are part of a life group and profess the Lordship of Jesus. Not that he would articulate it that way, but our culture itself has bought into this sacred and secular divide. And the question we've got to ask is, where has this divide come from? Yes, we see it, evidence in the Gospels, but we also see it throughout human history. And part of the short answer is that in the Western Enlightenment, at the peak of that in the 1700s, there was this man by the name of Immanuel Kant. He was a philosopher and he introduced and divided knowledge into two different realms and categories. The first category of knowledge that he introduced was what we would call noumenal knowledge or noumenal knowledge. That's a tongue twister. And he said this type of knowledge is more where you would put categories like God, faith, ethics, the supernatural world into that body of knowledge and you can't actually experience that. And so he, he immediately divided that which was of God and faith and spirituality separate to that which could be experienced with our natural senses. This knowledge is known as phenomenal knowledge. And this knowledge is where we can verify through data, facts, experience, evidence in the natural realm, that which is distinguished from what we can't verify in the invisible sort of metaphysical realm. Two different bodies of knowledge. Now, if you're wondering what an example of a noemonal statement is, um, you'll, you'll come across things like this. And as Christians, we celebrate this as truth, but the rest of the world doesn't really embrace it as truth like we do. So here's a statement that would categorize in that first realm of knowledge. Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that's true if we've had an encounter with Jesus. We believe it's truth, but we can't necessarily verify it through some sort of natural data. It's an encounter that has come by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore then, Matters of faith and politics and all these sorts of things tend to be what is not culturally acceptable to talk about and we place that in the sacred space. But when it comes to things that we can verify and when it comes to uh, the evidence of what we can see and hear and smell with our natural senses, we are more likely to believe it and we're more likely to talk about it because it's staring us right in our faces. An example of this would be when we talk about the weather. Oh, look, here's another, you know, cold, wet and windy day in Melbourne. Or look, there actually is blue in the sky. It's amazing. And, and, and we would talk about things like weather or what, how did your football team go on the weekend or how was the wedding or how's the job hunting going? We talk about these things because these are more culturally acceptable in the secular space. These are things that fit in the category of phenomenal knowledge. You can taste it, you can see it, and you can experience it. 
from this one man's philosophy and the impact of that upon Western civilization birth the cultural divide between sacred and secular. And so now things like faith, things like gospel, things like Jesus are not culturally acceptable to be talked about in the public space because they are matters of private opinion, matters of private faith. You are to keep this to yourself. And so the Western church by and large has had the mute button on because we don't want to make people feel awkward and it's not culturally acceptable. So Australia, like many other Western nations, have basically become a de facto closed country to the gospel because our culture says what is sacred cannot be talked about in the, in the public secular spaces of life. Am I right or am I right? Three people agreed. That's brilliant. And so you and I in the secular spaces of life will talk about things that we know won't lead to arguments, we know won't offend people, we know won't cause any angst and therefore evangelism becomes something that we never engage with, we never do because it's no longer culturally acceptable. This is what we currently face in Australian Western culture. What do you and I do with that when Jesus has commissioned us to go and make disciples of all nations? When Jesus has said in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. What do we do with that commission? What do we do with that commandment when every single day in our workplaces, in our high schools, universities, and in the culture, in the air that we breathe, we are bumping into this great divide between the sacred and secular. And the answer is found in this parable. We've got to go to them before they come to us. We have got to bridge the gap. We've got to get break out of our comfort zones and we've got to wage war against the cultural attack that the enemy has tried to bring against the church to actually shut the, the, the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah from helping people to actually discover the reality that Jesus is alive, that Jesus did die for them, that Jesus did rise again for them, that Jesus actually is the Son of God, we've actually got to look at what Jesus is showing us in this parable and we've got to follow his example. Jesus said this, who of you having 100 sheep, if he has lost one, doesn't leave the 99 and go after the one until he finds it? Jesus is actually speaking not just what we are to do, but he's speaking of himself. Because the shepherd in this passage of Scripture is actually the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. And what has Jesus actually modelled to us by coming and being born in the form of a man living amongst us, being tempted in all forms as we are. He's demonstrating us the principle and the power of incarnating himself, of coming to us before we go to him. He demonstrated to us in John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Before you and I could love Jesus, he loved us and died for us. 
That is the essence and power of the gospel message. When we couldn't save ourselves, Jesus bridged the great divide and saved us and laid down his life for us, taking the penalty of death upon himself. Jesus has already modeled to us what he has called us to. We must go to them before they come to us. How does this play out practically? Well, some of you would have heard me share this story, but several years ago, it's one of my best stories of introducing someone into faith. But I uh, attended uh, this barber salon, and so I walked in, and it was full with, filled up with everyone. And I'm sitting there on the seat, and there's this lady. I later discovered her name was Leanne, and uh, there's this lady cutting people's hair. And I noticed that everyone who got their hair cut by her, everyone else in the salon knew what their life story was, what their job was. Why? Because Leanne had a loud mouth and would tell everyone what was going on in this person's life. So I'm sitting on the chair, praying and fasting in Jesus' name that I would not have Leanne cut my hair. But Jesus doesn't like me. So he ignored my prayers. And so who do I have is Leanne. So I go and she starts asking me all the usual questions. You know, where do you live? What do you do for work? And I'm a pastor at a church, I'm trying to mumble my way through the answers. And she's like, what do you do? And I'm, like, I'm a pastor. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of keep it on the lowdown, right? Why? Because I'm in a secular space. I don't want to bring sacred topics into secular spaces because I'm just like you. Don't look at me so unspiritual and unholy. I know you do the same. And so I'm there and I'm in that barber's and I'm just trying to keep a lid on it, right? When I was traveling and speaking or and preaching the gospel all over the world and people ask me, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm a speaker and an author. I felt really good about that because I didn't, if, I, if I didn't want to divulge too much of what I spoke and wrote about, then it, we wouldn't have to take this conversation any further. But then they would ask you, what do you speak and write about? And I'd say, oh, spiritual things. Oh yeah, that really got their attention because you've discovered something. Even though there is a cultural divide between sacred and secular, Australians are interested in spirituality. They're searching for spiritual answers. They're searching for spiritual truth. And so it was really good when I was traveling, I could take them on a bit of a journey before the conversation actually shut down. But at this point, I'm a pastor of the church. Where are we gonna go? And so I'm, I'm a pastor. So I'm mumbling, right, in the chair. Anyway, by the end of the haircut, everyone in the salon is quiet, leaning in, listening as Leanne just unfolds to me all of her spiritual perplexities and, 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 and faith ideas and why this and why that and why religion and why this. And so I'm like, well, we're in this now. Let's just preach the gospel in Jesus' name. I mean, if you want to go there, let's go there. So over several months, I start inviting Leanne to come to our church. You've got to come and attend our church service. I know a great preacher there. You should come and you should come and hang out. And every time I asked her, she would decline the invitation, make up some excuse. And I get it. I understand it. I decided to pray for her. Good idea. If you have someone in your world that is far away from Jesus and you don't know what to do, begin with prayer. Just start to pray. So I'm praying for them. I'm praying for her. And so as I'm praying for her, I'm just like, God, give me an opportunity. Help me to connect with something in her world 
where to, to cross this barrier, this divide that's there where she's suspicious of church. She doesn't understand what, who you are or what you've done. She has a cultural picture of what church is and who Jesus is, but she hasn't had an encounter with the reality of who he is. And so one day I'm sitting in the chair and she starts talking about a financial need in her life. And the Holy Spirit says to me, I want you to take all the money out of your wallet and I want you to give it to her. And I said, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. (laughs) Because I'd just been to the ATM and I just filled that wallet up to take home to my wife and I want to live when I get home. And so I'm like, Jesus, the woman that you gave me as my helpmeet and partner will kill me if I give this lady all of this money in my wallet. And he's like, I'll speak to her. No, you won't. You haven't before. You have not before. So I'm having this conversation with God, right? And God and I are in the octagon and we're fighting, but Jesus always wins. And so I came to the end of the haircut. I paid the bill. I pulled the money reluctantly out of my wallet and I gave it to her and I said, here, this is for the financial need that you have. She teared up, but she said, I can't take it. I looked at her and said, God told me. She said, okay, I'll take it. And she puts it into her pocket. If ever in doubt, use the God card. It works every time, right? So I give her the money and then I walk out of the salon and the Holy Spirit says to me, you've just sown a seed for her salvation. I didn't understand that at the time. I'd never experienced something like this before. But six weeks later, I'm preaching at church on a Sunday night. I get to the end of the message. I get to the altar call. And, I, and as I'm asking people to raise their hands, I feel like there's one more person in the room. Little did I know, Leanne was at the back of the church. She'd walked in late. She was listening to this message. As I made a call for one last person, she put up her hand, walked down the aisle and surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. You see, less than 2% of believers have ever introduced another person to Jesus And the primary reason is we add evangelism as an activity or an event rather than including it as part of our normal lifestyle. We don't incorporate it into the everyday relational encounters that we have with people. And so therefore, we think if I add it on once a year, once a month, or, you know, some sort of added activity, then I'm engaging in evangelism. But evangelism is a lifestyle change, not an accessory item to an overcrowded life. We can't add it as just something that we carry a bag around with and pick it up and and, and put it down whenever we want. We are evangelism. We are followers of Jesus. We are, Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. But Lord, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not gifted to be an evangelist. Neither am I. But we do it. Why? Because we're commissioned to do it. We're empowered to do it. And we love people because Jesus first loved us and loves them. And we are the ones to bridge the divide between the sacred and secular and bring the sacred into every single area of our lives. We have to go to their things before they come to our things. We have to get into their world before they come into our world. The church is often standing, putting on concerts and events and wondering why the unsaved don't come 
but we're not going to them and being involved in their world, their activities, their birthday parties, their barbecues, their kids' sporting games, and we wonder why these two worlds never merge. You see, as we build relationships with our one person, there are two things that we need to really understand. The first thing is we need to listen to their story and then tell them our God story. We need to seek first to understand where they're coming from, then to be understood. And if you respect people enough to listen to them and ask questions of them, pretty soon those people will reciprocate the favour and give you the time of day and listen to you to what it is that you have to say. I think unfortunately too many of us have bought into the famous saying of St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And my response to that is, Francis, it's necessary. Because Romans 10, 14 to 17 says, how will they call on him in whom they have never believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? If we as believers in a Western culture Don't open up our mouths and give a reason for the hope that we have. And we are just hoping that through our silent witness that people will arrive at the idea that Jesus came, lived, died, rose again and wants a relationship with them. them. We're actually kidding ourselves because there are lots of people who do lots of good things but don't have a relationship with Jesus. There's lots of people who are unsaved, who give lots of money to charities, who care for their families, who are genuinely interested in loving other people. They do lots of amazing things, but still apart from Christ, they're going to spend all eternity separated from God. It's not enough just to be a secret agent for Jesus. We actually have to know the reason for the hope that we have are able to articulate our God story of what God has done in our life in one, two, three minutes. And in the journey of building a relationship, it could begin with a work colleague, someone in the sporting club, someone that is a part of your extended family. It could begin with a latte, then dinner, then, you know, whatever the journey of that building of the relationship takes you. God is actually wanting to take us to a point where we are sharing our God story with them. You know, in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman has an encounter with Jesus at the well. The encounter was so real, it was so powerful, it was so transformational that she went back to her town, her village, And she told everyone about her encounter. In other words, an encounter with Jesus will always lead to evangelism for Jesus. In fact, if you've never had an encounter with who Jesus is, it's going to be really difficult to evangelize or talk about what God has done in your life. A.W. Tozer says it like this, where there's no impulse to testify, there's been no inward experience of saving grace. Meaning that once you have an encounter with Jesus, there should be this compulsion, this impulse, this holy witness inside of you that says, I can't keep this to myself. I actually have to share it with people around about me. If you had the cure for cancer and one of your loved ones was dying of cancer, I guarantee you would pass on that cure. 
But all around us, people are dying in their sin. And many of us, we've encountered the reality of the cure of sin in our own lives through a personal, intimate faith in Jesus Christ. But we're not passing it on. We're not actually sharing what God has done in our lives. So the first thing we've got to do is we build relationship with unsaved people as we identify that one person that God's laid upon our heart. We listen to their story. We understand their world, their context, the the journey that they've been on. And then as we build relationship, we earn the respect and the right to be able to tell them our God story. Secondly, we must get our friends, our saved Christian friends, to become their friends. And this is so important. In fact, in this parable, the Bible says, Jesus says, when this shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours and he says, hey, let's have a party. Rejoice with me for the lost sheep, the one lost sheep that I went searching for has been found Let's hang out together. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. In other words, the shepherd connects that one lost sheep into his relational network. That one lost sheep is a metaphor for an unsaved person. In other words, Jesus is saying that if you actually want to focus on discipling, evangelizing your unsaved friends and family, someone who is far away from God, it's going to take more than just you. It's going to take an entire community of people. Now, this is so important. Why is it so important? It's because of something called plausibility structures. Now, before you just check out and say, I'm back at school. No, it's really important because you're here today because of plausibility structures. You may not have articulated that way. You may not have understood it that way, but you're actually here because of it. And this is what plausibility structures are. Every one of us make decisions or judgments on whether something is believable or unbelievable based upon what we call plausibility structures. Plausibility structures are shaped by three fundamental things. It's either shaped by community of friends and family, it's shaped by your experiences, or it's shaped by facts, data, evidence. Out of all the research that has ever happened around what influences you the most to believe whether or not, for example, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He came and lived and died and rose for you, out of those three sources, experience, facts, and community, the number one influence in every person's life that helps them to discover what is true from what is not true is in fact our relational network of friends and family. Which means if you and I go and do evangelism on our own because we're all fired up, we heard Pastor Corey preach the message, we're going after our one person, we're praying for it and we go out there and we're all solo and we're like the Lone Ranger forgetting that even the Lone Ranger had Tonto and we're out there and we're enthusiastic and we're zealous and we're passionate and we're handing out tracks and and we put on a badge and a white shirt and knocking on doors and we're doing all that we're doing, right? We forget that in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, Jesus sends them out two by two. He sends them out not by themselves, but in community. Because apparently Jesus knows something that we in the Western church have got to understand. And that is whether or not 
your unsaved family and friends get saved will be more about the community that they connect with and engage with and the relationships you build with them than whether or not you've actually got it all worked out and your theology, your lifestyle, and you're so perfect. It will be whether or not you're not the only smart in their world telling them that they need Jesus, but they look at your community. They look at your life group. They look at your relationships. They look at your world and go, wow, they're not the only ones saying this. All of these people are saying this. And all the research, everything tells us that until there is more than one person in their world, in their community of influence, actually telling them this is the truth. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's done that in my life. He can do it in yours. There will not be massive harvest of souls coming in to the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, Jesus rose from the dead. That's a true statement. But in verse 6, when he says 500 people saw Jesus Christ rise from the dead, that true statement becomes believable. Because all of a sudden, it's now not just one person. It's an entire community of faith. Most of us have two separate galaxies of friends. We have our unsaved friends and we have our saved friends. And we say, neither the two shall meet. Am I right or am I right? We say, cool. I feel a bit awkward and uncomfortable about, you know, merging these and mixing these. So I'm going to be this way with this group and I'm going to be this way with this group. And we are underestimating the power of merging those two groups together. Of saying, hey, we're going to a movie tonight. Hey, would you mind if I invite some friends along? Hey, we're going to a barbecue. We're going out for dinner. We're going down the beach. Would you mind if I invite some friends along? We have got to start to make our friends who are saved on fire, filled with the Holy Spirit, become their friends, not through some agenda, but because we actually love them and we care about their souls and their salvation. In other words, Jesus told this parable to help us understand that if we are going to reach one lost person with the gospel, we have to shift value systems. We have to embrace heaven's values over earthly values. Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Many of us would have heard the story about the man walking along the beach and he sees a young kid picking up starfish, literally miles and miles of starfish on the beach. The tide is out. And so he's picking up starfish and he's just throwing them in back into the water. And the man comes up to the kid and he's like, what are you doing? What, what difference are you going to make? And the kid picks up another starfish, throws it into the water and says, well, it made a difference to that one. And many of us think that we have got to save everyone. We think that we've got to reach everyone. But all God is asking you to do is reach out to that one person in your world, in your workplace, in your family, in your relational network. No one can reach everyone, but every one of us can reach someone. I want to ask you today, yep, I want to ask you today, who is your someone? Who is your person? And for some of us today, we go, I don't know. Okay, let's start there. God, show us who that person is. Some of you go, I know 
but I'm not intentionally engaging with them. Okay, God, let's start there. Would you give me an opportunity to speak to them, build a relationship with them, not beat them over the head with the gospel, but just love them for who they are? Some of you are at a point where you've been journeying with people for a while and you've missed the cues, you've missed the opportunities. Because in every conversation and relationship, there are cues. People tell you whether or not they want to take the conversation or relationship deeper. If we miss the cues, we miss the opportunity to give a reason for the hope that we have. And so for some of us today, it's like, okay, God, they've been asking questions and I haven't been going there. I've been afraid. I've been embarrassed. Today, God, would you actually give me another opportunity to give a reason for the hope that I have? And as you become intentional about this, watch what God does in their life. Watch what God does in our church as we prioritise one devotion, one ministry, one person, we will not be able to build buildings big enough for the people that will encounter Jesus and come to know Him as Lord and Saviour. Is anybody with me today in the house? Come on, let's stand to our feet. Let's get our one person in mind right now. Let's begin to pray for them. Father, we lift up that one person in our world could be that personal trainer, that, that teacher, that educator, that work colleague. It, it, it could be a cousin or a brother, a sister, a mother, a, a dad, a, a grandparent. It could be a son or daughter. It could be someone close or far from us. But God, you've put us in their world. You've put us in their uh, community of influence, God, and we just pray for them right now. We pray, God, that you would save them. We pray, God, that you'd help us to build an authentic, accessible, honourable relationship with them. We pray, Father, that they would see Jesus in us, that they would be attracted to us, that they would want to come and know you more because of how we live our lives. We pray, Lord God, that you would remove that veil of deception and darkness off of their mind and their eyes to see their need for you, that the light of the gospel would penetrate their heart, Father, and they would see that they need you, that you love them, that you died for them, that you rose again for them, reconciling them back to the Father. God, we pray today that, Lord, not only would they be saved, but, Lord, that we would see a harvest of souls come through their life, oh God, that you would raise up men and women of God out of the relationships that we build. And because we refused to be silent, because we had a reason for the hope that we have on our lips, we would see many, many, many hundreds and thousands of lost souls come to know You as Lord and Saviour. We ask, Holy Spirit, that You would sweep through our church, sweep through this city, sweep through our nation. That God, with this outpouring of Your Spirit, there would be a heart that is broken for the things that break your heart, a heart for the lost, a heart for that one lost sheep, a heart for that one lost person, that person that doesn't know you, that you love. We once were those lost sheep. We once were those lost people. And Father, I thank You that we are not on our own in this, but You've given us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the city of Melbourne, to the ends of the earth, all over Australia. Father, I pray today, would you anoint us and empower us to be your witnesses? 
Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with boldness today. Fill us with courage. I come against fear in Jesus' name. Fear of the culture, fear of opinions. Would you help us to be real, authentic and natural, but be supernaturally powerful in Jesus' name. And God, we thank you for the testimonies, the changed lives, the impact that's going to take place in people's lives. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, Amen. Can we just Thank you for joining us for this message today. It is an incredible privilege to share with you the Word of God and we trust that you've been blessed by listening. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today we want to extend an invitation to you to begin the faith journey of following Jesus. The Bible teaches us every one of us have been created for relationship with God. Sin has separated every one of us from that relationship, but God has provided a solution in giving us His Son, Jesus Christ. John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You have an opportunity today to respond with a confession of faith and a decision to believe in Jesus. Today, we invite you to make a deliberate decision to invite Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Saviour. Romans 10.10 says that with our hearts we believe and are justified, and with our mouths we confess and we are saved. So right now, if you have faith in your heart and you're ready to make that decision, you can simply pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I thank you that you love me so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. Thank you that through his death and resurrection, I am forgiven of my sin to start a brand new life. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me, cleanse me and to fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. Today, I choose you as my Lord and Saviour and I thank you that I am now born again as a child of God. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, we would love to know and we would love to help you in any way that we can. You can contact us on our Bridge Church website, bridgechurch.com, and we'd love to hear from you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you have been challenged and encouraged. 